Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, After having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Is Christianity really that special? What's the difference between other religions? Do all faith roads point the same direction? I mean, a lot of world religions have ideas of who Jesus is. Why is the historical Christian version of him arguably the true one? We're going to talk about those hard questions today and more. And friend, I don't think you want to miss this. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and I am so thankful you're listening, friend. As you hopefully already know, every month we're inviting a young woman with real faith questions to join me as a co-host, and together we're inviting guests on during the month to share their stories and also tackle some of my co-hosts' hardest questions from a Christian perspective. If you have been listening and want to have these kinds of faith conversations with your own friends but don't know where to start, whether you are a skeptic or a believer, I've created a resource over on my website to help ignite that kind of dialogue, and you can get that for free. You can go over to the Finding Something Real um, podcast, findingsomethingreal.com. Just look for the seven deep faith, or I'm sorry, it says seven deep questions at the top of the page. I do have to say that just the other day, um, I was on the Clubhouse app, and I was in a room that was a conversation between atheists and Christians and honestly, people from various um, faith perspectives, and it was so fascinating respectful, and honest. And I think there's a real need in our world today for more talks like these and that. So I encourage you to check out that resource. And for my regular listener, this is the awkward but necessary commercial where I tell you how you can support what we're doing here. Patreon membership starts at just $5 a month, and that includes a one-time pack of custom stickers and a monthly bonus episode that I record at the end of each month with just my co-host. That episode is a casual wrap-up discussion where we talk about what impact, if any, this podcast co-hosting journey had. And friend, I'm not lying when I say those are some of my favorite episodes that we're recording. So your support of this program helps keep us on the air, and in exchange, we provide that bonus content. Again, you can head over to my website, findingsomethingreal.com, and find out more information under where it says support at the top of the page. Okay, so we're going to dive in, and today on the podcast, I'm honored to welcome back this month's special co-host. She's part of my beloved Dutch exchange family, one of the sweetest girls I could ever meet, and she's not sure about God, but she has some great questions about him. Welcome back, 
Dakmar from the Netherlands. Thank you for having me, Janelle from America. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dakmar, <laughs> uh, so far you and I have recorded your intro episode, and also we spoke with Julia Gershagen <clears throat> from Germany. How are you feeling about this journey so far? I know it's been a few weeks. Uh, obviously, as we're airing this, it's only a week since we talked with Yulia, but it's in reality, it's been several weeks. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts so far on what we've done? Um, well, I've definitely found it um, <clears throat> interesting and um, I've had fun talking and discovering new perspectives and thinking in a little bit of a different way. So it's been yeah, interesting, fun. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm obviously thankful to have you back. And I know that um, today we are joined by a very special guest. Lindsay Medenwalt is the executive director of Mama Bear Apologetics. And over there is regarded as resident world religion specialist. She has a master's degree in apologetics and ethics from Denver Seminary as well as a master's in public administration and a law degree. She recently contributed a chapter about the Jehovah Witnesses to the Harvest House Popular Handbook of World Religions. She and her husband, who is also an apologist, have been married for 13 years. They have three daughters and live in Texas. And in her spare time, I love this, by the way, Lindsay loves watching British reality television, (laughs) and she's an avid reader with an at-home library of more than 2,000 books. I thought that was really impressive. (laughs) Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. Do you have a favorite book? Uh, Jane Eyre is my number one Mm go-to if we're talking fiction. Um, Okay. I will read that book often. There's hope in it as well. Um, it's, okay. it's not as sad as Little Women. <laughs> it's either that or Little Women. And I'm like, well, Little Women was the first book that I cried on. And Jane Eyre okay. was the second. And okay. for, for Jane Eyre, um, you know, we adopted a child and she was an orphan. And, and there was a bit of a storyline in there. And it's just always resonated deeply with me. Um, and, and there is hope at the end for for whatever Jane Eyre is, is hopeful for, there is hope. Wow. And favorite nonfiction or one that you just love that you keep going back to? Well, I wasn't going to say mere Christianity, except I reread it this morning and it's awesome. Like there's <laughs> so much richness in, in that little tiny book. Um, C.S. Lewis, what a man, right? Used by God so well. Um, but I also love um, The God Who Is There by Francis Schaeffer. So that's another book that I pick up quite frequently and just kind of browse through. Awesome. Well, first of all, I need to shout out to our mutual friend, Leah Chapman, um, <laughs> of the Apologetic Simplified podcast for introducing us. Leah was on this podcast with her brother Andrew last fall when we talked about the reliability of the Bible, and she's become a friend, and she spoke so highly of you, so I'm just thankful for her and people like her who just go above and beyond, and Leah, if you're listening, just thank you. This wouldn't be possible without you, and um, I'm also, Lindsay, I'm excited to chat with you as well because I love the work of the Mama Bear Apologetics Ministry. Um, I've been personally impacted by it. I think what you're doing is fantastic. 
Hillary Morgan Frere was on this podcast um, when I first launched just weeks into it in the fall of 2019. And I just love her heart and the passion behind everything you guys are doing. So um, for those who aren't familiar, what is Mama Bear Apologetics? Mama Bear Apologetics is a ministry that reaches out primarily to moms, which is why we're called Mama Bear Apologetics, but you do not need to be a mom to read or watch our material at all. Um, it's just accessible for moms. It started basically with a podcast because a lot of times moms don't have time to sit down and read. Um, and we will have those podcasts pretty regularly. We've been on hold a little bit because we just finished up our second book, but they'll be coming back. Um, but essentially what we want to do is equip the moms with truth and why they can believe Christianity is true. And then they can equip their kids. Basically, we're giving them the tools that they can use in their own homes to help spiritually develop their children and, and show them Christ is, is what we do at Mama Bear Apologetics. We try to simplify some of the um, not so simple apologetic arguments that are out there and make them accessible for the person who may never go to college or may never go to grad school and, and really show them like, you don't have to be um, an intellect. You don't have to be somebody who has a college degree um, to know why Christianity is true. Mm -hmm. I love that. And because so often people that are talking about these issues are intellectually way up here. And sometimes it just feels like, what is the relevance to my everyday life? <laughs> Not only do you take what's way up here sometimes and make it accessible, but you also share about why it's relevant. And I think that's so, so important. But for somebody listening right now, maybe a young woman or somebody who's not familiar with the term apologetics, because I think it's so easy to throw that term around and really not even know what it is. And it sounds like, oh, you're making apologies. Mm -hmm. So would you please share just for whoever's listening what that is? Yeah, that's probably the number one misconception about what apologetics is and it comes from Christians as well, why would you apologize for being a Christian? Uh, that's not what apologetics is. Um, apologetics is from the Greek word apologia, and it means to make a defense for. So if you think of an attorney trying to build his or her case in a courtroom, it really is kind of what apologists do. We take history and archaeology and a number of other fields, psychology. My husband is an expert in psychology and apologetics. And bring those together to show why Christianity is reasonable and, um, and why we can believe what's in the Bible. That's really what, it, it's making a defense for what we believe. That's the easiest way to put it. And there are not just Christian apologists, there are apologists in other religions as well. So there are Muslim apologists and Latter-day Saint apologists, um, and they all are sort of trying to prove why their religions are true. And so what I do as a world religion person is I am also looking at those arguments from other worldviews and making a determination on whether or not I buy into what they're saying. Uh, so it, it really is a, a busy thing for me, but it's very important work that I do. Um, I am a full-time children's pastor at my church, and it really is so important to me that we are equipping parents and um, adults who have children or are in contact with children to show them it's not just an emotion. Um, I don't just feel Christianity is true, although you know emotions can certainly be a part of it. Um, but we know that the heart is deceptive and it can tell us lies. 
And so in order to be prepared for those times where I'm going through really rough moments where our kids are going through really rough moments and we're saying, why is God, how do we know God is real? I'm experiencing awful things and my heart is telling me he's not real. If we have equipped them with the arguments that show Christianity is true in those rough times, they'll be able to fall back on what they know is true and remember, okay, my emotions are lying to me. Let's tap into the brain real quick and make sure that everything's computing the way it's supposed to be. Well, it's really interesting and so true uh, that feelings can come and go uh, depending on whatever. For everything, not just religion, yeah. like in everything. We always, you know, we could be emotional about the cars we drive or the color of paint on our walls. It's just, there's emotions involved in everything and recognizing that sometimes those emotions are really true and valid. And other times we just need a nap and we just need to eat a good meal and, and, and remember like, oh, I'm human. I'm emotional. I'm made in, a, I'm made in the image of a creator who is also emotional and this is completely normal, but maybe I shouldn't accept any like lies in, in the midst of those emotions. I want to ask you about your story, but before I do that, I'm, I'm watching Doc Mar's face, <laughs> and I'm wondering if you have some thoughts um, on what Lindsay just shared. Yeah, I think it's really cool. It's yeah, I really like it. But like, what are, for example, what are some uh, defenses, arguments uh, for Christianity? That is a whole yeah. field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like a few, like two or three examples or yeah, something. Yeah. So I guess we could start with the universe. The universe mm -hmm. has a cause. Um, how did the universe begin? Do you have any idea where the universe began? Like um, that, that is really a good, a good place to start. If we look at the complexity of the universe, we can see the universe had a beginning. It hasn't always existed. You could call that anything you want, but it's like, picture yourself walking through the woods and you stumble upon a red ball, okay? Mm -hmm. What would your assumptions be? That the red ball just appeared there out of nowhere? No. What, what would you assume? Uh, probably that some kid brought it to the woods and played with it and then lost it. Right. So what if that ball was the size of a house? What would your assumption be? Would your assumption be that it, it just placed itself there out of nowhere? No. No, now you've got a ball the size of earth and the idea of it just coming out of nothing. Um, the universe had a beginning and mm -hmm. our, our job is to determine, it's not even our job. It's, it's just one of the main questions that we seek to answer is how did it begin? And really that answer is an uncreated creator, someone who already existed, created the universe. And for Christians, that's person, the personal God of Christianity, okay? That's, that's what we believe, that God who is um, timeless and spaceless, um, he created the universe. That's the first real argument for Christianity is that the universe started, was created um, out of nothing by a personal creator. Um, that's the cosmological argument. That's a big word that I boil down to a little tiny um, scenario of the red ball in the woods. Um, and so that's the one argument. Do you have any questions about that? Yeah, she does. Yeah. I can tell. Well, because when you look at it, like um, according to Christianity, we are created in the image of our creator, like God. But then 
God was never created. So how does that happen? Like, does God not have a beginning? But we have a beginning. So, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and honestly, I will not be able to answer that question. That is a, co a question that humans will ask from the beginning of time until the end of time. Um, all I can say is in John 4, um, God is described as a spirit, not as physical. And so when we're picturing God, we're picturing him as this physical being that we're made in his image. And that automatically leads us to think of whatever your image of God is. And some people, it's like this old guy with a white beard. Um, and it just depends on what you've been raised in your culture to think of what God looks like. But generally, God takes on physical attributes when we as mm -hmm. humans are trying to imagine him. And that's not really accurate. It makes it easier for us to kind of imagine him, but at the same time, he's not on physical space. He's not made up of matter in, in a sense that we are unable to um, hold on to him and grasp him. Um, he can make himself known um, by appearing to people, but even in, in, in scripture, when he appears to people, it's generally, don't look at me. <laughs> you're gonna, you're not gonna be able to handle this, um, and and it's it's usually an essence that we see, except for his embodiment as Jesus. Obviously, Jesus was fully God and fully human, um, which again, I don't expect our minds to wrap ourselves around that. That is a a concept that I have tried to grasp for. 35 years. Um, how is that possible to be fully God and fully human all at the same time, 100% and 100% equal 100%? Um, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I don't think it has to make sense for, an, for it to be true. Um, humanity, we have tiny little brains. We have excellent brains that work really well. Um, and, and we are gifted in many ways that we can think through things. And science has shown us um, kind of the second argument in favor of Christianity, Christianity, which is this fine tuning of the universe. If we take away certain elements of how the universe is made, we all cease to exist. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it won't work together. Um, and if you, if you Google it, you'll see tons of videos about um, the fine tuning of, of even just our DNA structure or the way that our bodies function. Um, and, it, and it points to a creator. It points to somebody making us uh, and, and developing us so that we function and that we can run and, and work and do all of the things that humans are capable of doing, but we're not God. And to expect us to think like God is never gonna happen. <laughs> We're never going to be able to process things the way that our creator has processed things. He has made beautiful things. And um, even in our best minds, we can't even begin to create the things that he has created, including um, humanity. We're just too fine-tuned. Um, and um, it, it doesn't make sense to think that we just, and we were here. Um, somebody developed us. And the question is who? Uh, and 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 for uh, for me for Christians that who is the God of the Bible? So I want to pause right there because I know Doc Mar's got a lot, a lot of questions. questions. I love it, um, and it's so good. And Doc Mar, just so you know, like when I'm questioning, like uh, I mean, even now sometimes I'll think, wow, uh, why do, why do I believe in God? Like <laughs> I I will have moments 
I will have moments and I, I see Lindsay's nodding her head. I think that's, it's interesting. Faith doesn't come without questions. There's definitely those questions like, well, how did God come into being? Like he really, I, it's impossible. I mean, try to imagine eternity, like never ending. It, I, I get a headache even trying to think about that, but right? Like no there's starting. some things. <laughs> yeah. Never starting, never ending. <laughs> um, and yet I, I would consider myself a strong believer, but for me, something that I come back to often is when I look at a book and I see the complexity that goes into a book, um, there is no way that I would ever think that that came out of nowhere from something that wasn't intelligent. Mm. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there's not, there's no like way. Mm -hmm. um, but then when I look at like our DNA, when I look at the complexities of the universe itself, not even our, our planet, but the universe that's ever expanding, there, there had to me, it makes way more sense that there had to be somebody who created all that than mm -hmm. just by accident, especially the way that we think and we feel and we reason there's just too much on the side of a creator from my, from my perspective. And I'm not, you know, obviously an apologist like Lindsay, but um, I, I do want to ask Lindsay before we get too far down uh, these questions uh, trail, because I know uh, Doc Moore has a lot and I love it. Um, but could you tell us a little bit of how you got passionate about this? Why you just mentioned your children's uh, pastor full time, like, this is a very specific thing. Not everybody who's a children's pastor. I mean, there's a lot of children's pastors who are singing, you know, Father Abraham and like focusing on that and these like little Sunday school things, which is great. Um, but why this? Why was this such a passion for you? What's your story? Now that song is stuck in my head. Thanks. Um, <laughs> she had many sons. Okay. Yeah. Um, I still like that song with my kids. It's, not... it's so sweet. It's a sweet song. Um, I guess because of my husband. My husband was not a Christian when we met, and uh, he took a religion class in college, and part of that was to investigate what he believed. Uh, for him, he was agnostic at the time, and so he spent a lot of time investigating the claims of Christianity because I was a Christian, and he was thinking, well, Maybe not, not necessarily, maybe he can disprove it, um, but just what, is this reasonable? Is this, he's a reasonable guy, is this reasonable? And so he set himself up on a task to investigate the claims of Christianity. And when he, what he did was he went to the internet and he Googled um, atheist who becomes a Christian, having no clue what would come up. Um, and Lee Strobel, um, who wrote the case for Christ and, uh, and several other case for books. Uh, he his story popped up on the screen, and and Jay read Case for Christ and uh, a couple of other apologetics related books, and decided at the end of this journey, huh, Christianity makes sense, um, and he became a Christian. Flash forward uh, three years, he decides he wants to go to seminary and um, get out of the Air Force. And so he outprocessed from the Air Force the same day that we that we started seminary. And I say we because Denver Seminary has a 50% off discount for spouses. And I could not pass up that kind of deal to get a master's degree at 50% off was just too good of a deal. And, and I went not so that I could become an apologist or even so I could become a children's pastor, but so that I could get to know my husband better. I really wanted to be able to 
fully understand the kinds of things that he was talking about because he would say things like apologetics or cosmological argument. And I would just be like, no idea. Like, <laughs> dude, I'm so glad that works for you, but I don't understand what you're talking about. And so I thought this, you know, master's degree would really help my marriage. Not that we were struggling, but it would make more things um, that we could talk about. Then first year in seminary, I met Hillary and, um, and we were at a conference together and she said, have you ever considered writing about world religion? And I said, no, I mean, I love world religion. Sure. sure. And so actually three years ago today, I published my first article on Mama Bear Apologetics. And, and it was essentially why is studying world religions important? That was the question that I was answering in this particular article. And we have just been on a roller coaster ride since then. Uh, I was um, offered the chapter in the book. I started writing for the Christian Research Journal. Um, I've had a number of other um, uh, speaking engagements and podcasts. And, and the question becomes, why? Why has this become my life? <laughs> this was not what I imagined my life would be four years ago, uh, five years ago when we started seminary. Um, but I realized and, and this is why I feel like a podcast like this is so important. The ministry I had been doing for apologetics was sort of nameless and faceless. Uh, it was for the masses who didn't know Christ or maybe to bolster those, uh, the faith of those who already claim to be Christians. Now, as I interact with more people from other worldviews and I get to know atheists and I get to know people like Dagmar who have these deep, penetrating questions about Christianity and God, I realized that we're not dealing with nameless, faceless entities. We're dealing with real people who have real questions. And, and it's become this, this mission of mine to help them find answers. And if I don't know the answers, to connect them with people who do. Um, and, and I'm just, I'm so glad to be able to speak with Dagmar because I find it important that we have these kinds of respectful dialogue where we can answer the really hard questions that Janelle, you said we even struggle with sometimes as Christians um, and, and, and really connect with someone who's, who's got questions and is willing to listen. Yeah. Well, Dagmar, you got questions? I got questions. <laughs> if I don't know the answer, I'll find you the answer. We can talk later. <laughs> Okay, um, let's think, which question am I going to ask? Question roulette. Let's go for it. No. Oh, yeah. Well, I've got one that I listed, I think, there too, which is about world religion. Because, um, as you said, a lot of uh, different religions see Jesus as different people. But, for example, I think it's Judaism, Muslim, Islam, and Christianity who, in my opinion, kind of have the same God, just with different names, like probably Jehovah Witnesses belong there too. But for me, it's like, as I envision it, it's kind of like the same God, just different perspectives on him. How, why would it be like Christianity then that is real? Mm, solid question. It's a question that uh, we deal with quite a bit. Andy, Andy Bannister just wrote a book. Um, he's an apologist. Um, somewhere in Europe, uh, I forget which country in Europe, it's a big, 
somewhere in Europe. <laughs> he's European and um, really fun to listen to because he's got a really fun accent. But he just wrote a book on um, Islam and Christianity and, and whether or not we worship the same God. Uh, there's also a scholar uh, named Francis Beckwith who's Catholic um, and he has grappled pretty heavily with that question as well. Um, particularly do, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? So let's, let's talk about the similarities. Um, Jewish people, Muslims and Christians um, are Abrahamic faiths. That is, um, we come from the Abrahamic faith of the Old Testament. There is um, the Torah and um, we all sort of subscribe to those, those um, first five books of the Bible. We believe those, all of us have that in common. That's kind of where the commonalities, I don't say end, but it becomes a little bit more complicated when we're talking about similarities and differences. Muslims do believe in Allah, which is, is God to them. That's, that's his name. Um, but I would, I would say maybe he is um, the same in description, but theologically he's very different. Um, the God of Christianity is personal and um, cares for us deeply, loves us deeply, and also is just. He has justice along with mercy. And um, he, I guess the personal side of God of Christianity is kind of the, the main thing. We can talk to God in Christianity. For Muslims, God is not personal at all. Um, Allah is not a personal being. Allah is his own entity separate from his people. And um, I wouldn't say he doesn't care about his people, but the way that he thinks about people is different than the God of Christianity. The God of Christianity um, knew that we needed a savior. And in order to do that, he sent his only son to live and die and be resurrected for us so that our sins could be forgiven. The God of Islam, he um, requires works. So not only do you need to believe in the God of Islam, you also need to do a series of things um, from fasting to praying. To, there's, a, there's about five or six things that they have to do. Um, and even then, at the mm -hmm. end of it, he can say, you didn't do enough. You don't get to go to heaven. Um, for God of Christianity, we are forgiven by simply believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins. I want to jump back to the God of Judaism and insightful when we're talking about Jewish people. They follow rules. They, they are very rules-oriented people um, in general. Um, and they believe that they have to follow a certain set of rules. Um, it, it's it's rules-based. Uh, they, they also, they're not Christians. Um, there are some Messianic Jews, but in general, Jewish people do not believe, this is what sets them apart from Christians, really. They do not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. So when they're looking at prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, um, they do not believe that Jesus met the requirements of the Messiah. And, and for them, that, that's that's it. That's why many of them are not Christians. Now, there are some um, Messianic Jews who believe Jesus was the Messiah. Um, they still subscribe to a lot of the traditions 
uh, that exist in the Jewish faith and the Jewish culture, but they also believe that Jesus Christ is their savior. Uh, it's a weird dichotomy, <laughs> but it works. And um, the other thing I want to clarify here, Dagmar, is anything I say about another worldview and even Christianity is in general terms, you may meet Muslims or Jewish people or Christians or Jehovah's Witnesses who have different beliefs than what we're saying today or um, think of things differently than we do. And that sort of goes to your whole interpretation question. Um, how do they interpret things differently? We're human. Um, and um, that's, that's a big part of it. For Muslims, they believe that the Quran um, takes precedent over the Bible because they're not real confident in the Bible's translations. Um, and so the Bible um, says Jesus Christ died and he was resurrected. The Quran says that Jesus didn't die. Um, and that's a very big difference between Muslims and Christians is that, especially we're coming up to Easter, probably not when this airs, we've already celebrated Easter when this airs, but we're coming up to Easter right now. And that's sort of the big kahuna of celebrations for Christianity. This is what we've been building toward, right? We've been building toward this moment where Christ comes from the dead and the tomb is empty and we can celebrate the fact that our savior has returned and um, we can be with God forever and ever. Um, we believe he died and there's very good evidence that Christ died on the cross um, and that the tomb was empty and that people saw him after he was dead. There's extremely good evidence on that. Muslims reject that evidence because they are told in the Quran that Jesus didn't die. And that um, it, it's, it's typically the swoon theory. It's called the swoon theory where he sort of passed out, um, but then he didn't really die. Um, so that court sort of sets apart, um, the, I think the three religions and kind of why there's a difference um, in, in the way that we interpret things. It's, um, it's the way things have been interpreted, um, I guess is, is the easiest way to say it. Okay. I made it more convincing, yeah. didn't I? See the face. No, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. It definitely does. It's still, it's not like the questions that are popping up into my head. I don't think there are any answers for them. Just like, for example, um, I wish, no, I think this one you might be able to answer because um, what you said about the Islam's not, believing in a translation of the bible in my opinion that kind of makes sense because in history class i learned that um at least in the catholic faith um for a very long time only pastors and uh ministers i think is were allowed to read the bible in latin and they were like not allowed to translate it to the regular people because they would interpret it wrong or anything else. But to me, that's so strange because I think that have a holy book uh, from God, from people who've written it under the um, supervision of God, in my opinion, then everyone who believes in God should be able to read that book and process it to their beliefs. So. To me, that kind of makes sense that the Islams don't believe in the translations. Mm. Okay, so let me let me touch on that just a little bit. Um, 
That's okay. So when you're talking apologetics, we're really big. Uh, there's a really big umbrella over apologetics. And I am in a tiny little section of apologetics, world religion. Like that's a, and that's not even a tiny section, that's a big section uh, of apologetics that exists there. So let's try to tackle that a little at a time. One thing you need to know about Muslims as well is that the Quran uh, is only considered authentic and correct if it appears in Arabic and in its original language. So they also do not trust English versions of the Quran. And when, when they are studying the Quran and trying to memorize the Quran, unless they're learning it in the original language, it's not considered valid. Um, and, and this is general, general terms here. Um, and they often don't understand what it is they're memorizing. Uh, and, and so Muslims will memorize large portions of the Quran and not actually know what it says because they don't speak Arabic. Um, that's, that's true. When we're talking the Bible and translations, some of the things that um, have unfortunately come out of um, memes, <laughs> meme culture, <laughs> as much as I love memes, I love a good meme. Um, <laughs> some of the things that have come out of meme culture is trying to um, simplify, I guess, this idea of Bible translations and how it's like a game of telephone and how, I don't know if you're familiar with that game, but it's essentially little kids all sitting in a circle and somebody says a sentence in secret to a next person and then a next person. And at the end, the last kid has no idea what the original kid said. And they are comparing it, uh, the, the Bible translations to that. But that's not how it worked um, back in the first century. In the first century, it was a very oral culture. And, and what that means is, is that things were spoken quite frequently. So when Jesus traveled and spoke to, from people to people to people, he would probably speak the same passages that we read in scripture over and over and over again. And as his disciples were recounting the stories of Jesus, generally they would, they would speak to large groups of people. It wasn't just in secret to one person. And then that story gets changed. And what happens in an oral culture is that they're corrected if they get something wrong. So if they're telling the story and they, they tell it wrong, they say, let's say they're, they're recounting the story of Jesus seeing Thomas after the resurrection and Thomas asking to see Jesus's wounds. Okay, but they change Thomas's name to Peter. So Jesus appears to Peter and Peter demands that Jesus show him his wounds or otherwise he's not going to believe that it's actually Jesus. In an oral culture, they would get called out on that. No, 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 it wasn't Peter. It was Thomas because they would just tell these stories and listen to these stories over and over and over again. So when they were transcribed, generally what would happen is they would just have people who were able to write, would just write these out and the same way they would get like, oh no, you got that piece wrong. You got that piece wrong and it would get fixed. But if you're looking at the historicity of the New Testament and whether or not it's a historical document that can be believed? The answer is yes. It, that's the shortest way to answer that question. Um, yes, it can be believed. Um, yes, there are translations that make it, a lot of times as a children's pastor, I'm asked, which translation is best? And my response is the translation that you can understand. If you speak Spanish, I don't want you reading an English Bible. That would make no sense to me. 
Um, and um, if you're a kid, you're going to have a hard time understanding the King James Version, although there are people who will only read the King James, King James Version. Um, and, and, and my point there is, unless we're reading a version of scripture that was not taken from the original text, not transcribed from the original text. So let me give you an example. Thomas Jefferson, you know who Thomas Jefferson was? It's really important in American history. Um, and I don't want to assume you know who he was. Um, but he, um, he was what, uh, he was not a Christian in a sense that we would think of evangelical Christians today. He didn't believe in miracles. He didn't believe in the supernatural. And so there's something called the Jeffersonian Bible. And what Thomas Jefferson did was he took out all of the miracles in the Bible. And then that was his Bible. Okay. That's not a good translation because that removes like the meat, of such meat of the story, right? That's like a big part of scripture it, are these miracles, let alone, you know, the resurrection. That's like the biggest miracle of all. Um, and so that would be a, a translation that I I would not recommend. Um, I actually wouldn't recommend the New World Translation, which is what Jehovah's Witnesses use. Why? Because, and I think we're going to get into the Jehovah's Witnesses in a little bit, but the people who translated the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, there are five people who got into like a secret room and they were anonymous, okay, which is generally a problem. They're, they're anonymous. Eventually their anonymity went away. One of them was like, oh no, these were the guys. We were, we were the guys. Um, most of them were not highly educated um, in, 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 in language, definitely. Uh, they did not speak Greek or Hebrew, and they were translating Greek and Hebrew uh, <laughs> into what the New World Translation is today. And um, I would not rely on that translation. I would rely on a translation where it is actually taken from scholars who know Greek and Hebrew. Um, the NIV, for example, let me tell you how that works. There are a group of men and women who get together periodically to review any new discoveries that have happened with um, original um, documents that have been discovered um, and decide whether or not the way that the Bible, the translation is, is correct, or if it needs to be modified in a, in a way to make it more reflective of the original text. These are Greek scholars. Arabic scholars, Hebrew scholars, his, history, historians, theologians, people who spend their entire lives researching this stuff. Um, and I know a couple of them personally, and, and, and it, that makes it even more real to me that I know these people do their best to make sure they're being true to the original text. So when we're talking translation, we wanna find a translation that we can understand, that makes sense to us, but it's also not wrong, uh, if, that, if that makes sense. Um, we're not looking for wrong translations. We're looking for um, as accurate of a translation as possible. Yeah. That was a lot. Do you have a follow-up? Um, yeah, I, I completely get that. I mean, um, I've read part of the Bible in Dutch and I've read the children's Bible in Dutch um so yeah i completely get that because um, no way no way possible that i can read the latin bible and but, i can't read the dutch one but that yeah. doesn't make it wrong no exactly but um still uh, there's stuff that uh, 
in my opinion, was so wrong with the start of Christian slash Catholic faith because I am officially Catholic. Okay. <laughs> um, I was uh, raised sort of Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to a Catholic primary school, middle mm -hmm. school combination. So um, most of the stuff that I know about faith are Catholic. And then I went to a public high school and there we had history and we were taught everything that was wrong about um, like the start of Catholic faith because we also have a lot of Protestants here. Like most, I think most of the Christians in the Netherlands are Protestant. And like there are definitely stuff, I mean, they're both Christians. But there's definitely stuff about the Catholics that, in my opinion, are just so wrong. Like, mm. for example, I don't know what it's called in English, but in Dutch is aflate. So it's like tickets to heaven. Like people could literally buy tickets to heaven. And mm. uh, they had to donate as much of money as possible. And rich people who donated $20 were way more praised than a poor woman who only had $1 and gave her $1 to the church. Like stuff like that, it's just feels so wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to respond to that, um, I want to make sure that we're keeping the main things the main things. Um, mm -hmm. In order to be saved for Christianity, all it requires is belief that Jesus came to earth and died for us and was resurrected and that our hope is in eternity with God. Um, have some denominations and other religions um, and even Christians gotten things wrong? Yeah, a lot of times. Um, humans mess things up and um, whether you are, I mean, so one of the arguments for Christianity um, is the moral argument and it's whether or not there are objective moral values. And what you're talking about is, it just seems wrong. Why does it seem wrong? Why does it seem wrong to um, let people buy their way into heaven? Well, there's this innate feeling inside of us that is there are just certain things that you shouldn't do. And you shouldn't torture little children. That That's like a thing that pretty much everybody can agree on. I don't think you should torture anyone. No, you shouldn't torture. Right, but some people will say, I'm just trying to generalize in terms that most people and most people will say you should not torture little children. Um, I also agree with you that we should not torture anyone. Um, I, I agree with you, but there are some people who won't. Um, why do we feel that way? Uh, where does that um, desire for morality come from? And this objective moral of not wanting to to lie to people generally, um, where we feel wrong if we're stealing somebody's car, um, or it feels wrong to um, steal from somebody else's property. Why do we have those feelings of, this is just gross? Where does that come from? And for Christians, that comes from God. God has given us this innate feeling of, we want justice when bad things happen. And um, we, we just know innately that there's something wrong with those things. Um, so that's another argument that points to 
God being a creator of us and, um, and putting himself in us. If that there's another image that you're going to have to figure out in your life <laughs> is how does God go in us? And he's everywhere and he's, he's not physical and maybe he's, yeah. maybe he's here. That would make sense. There's everywhere and seen us too. Hmm. Sure. That, that dips into a different worldview, but <laughs> I will, I just don't want to become panentheists that that doesn't really work. Um, but your questions are important questions because um, if we're not grappling with the really hard things, then what the heck are we doing? Um, it, it just um, doesn't make sense to me. Um, one more thing, and then we can we can move on from here. Is the last big argument for Christianity being true is Jesus? Um, Jesus is the last big piece of the puzzle, um, and, and I and I would be remiss if I if I didn't talk about Jesus for a second. Um, so I hope that you'll humor me. Um, most people will agree that Jesus existed. Okay, so we're just gonna go with that. Jesus existed, he was a real person. Even atheist scholars and agnostic scholars like Bart Ehrman will, will proclaim Jesus was real. Okay, so we're just not gonna die on that. We're just, he was real, okay? Most scholars will also agree that Jesus died. Okay, and that he died via crucifixion by the Romans. Pontius Pilate was a real person. He existed. He was the fifth governor of Caesarea. He is in historical documents outside of the Bible. Um, Jewish historian Josephus wrote about him. The Roman um, historian Tacitus wrote about Jesus and, and Pontius Pilate. And um, there is agreement that Pontius Pilate ordered the death and crucifixion of Jesus. So we can just go with the fact that that is true too, that, that he was sentenced to death, Jesus was sentenced to death. With regard to the crucifixion, um, there are a variety of illustrations that sort of describe the, the trauma, if you will, that Jesus endured um, on his way to the cross. And um, one of those words that's used in the Bible is flogging. And I don't think um, people today kind of understand what that means um, and what that does to a person's body, but it is basically a whip, a, a leather whip with little um, stakes and little other things, uh, metal objects attached to it. And what the Roman guards would do is they would, with for at least 39 times, although some scholars argue Jesus had more than 39 lashes, would whip the person and it would bruise the skin and often break open the skin and they would just continue to whip. And so by the end of the 39 plus lashes that Jesus endured, his body was truly broken. It was, it was just a mangled mess at this point. Um, and then he had to carry his cross to um, the hill where he died. They then drove five to seven inch metal stakes through his wrists and ankles and hoisted him vertically where he was left to hang. So his body is broken and he is um, nailed into a cross and then he's left there to hang. Did this really happen? History says yes. Were the Romans really good at crucifixion? History says yes. There have been archeological digs that have pulled up people who um, have died from crucifixion and the um, torture that Jesus endured is consistent with what is evident in those bodies that have been brought up um, that have been crucified by the Romans. Um, and it would be sort of unheard of for someone to 
survive a crucifixion because the Roman guards were really good at killing people, really good at it. Um, the ultimate death blow for Jesus was when, when the Roman guard stabbed him with a stake through his lungs and his heart. So how did Jesus die? Not only was he tortured, he likely died of asphyxiation, which means he, he couldn't breathe, and heart failure. And so the, the question of whether he died isn't really a question at all. A person who has endured that much trauma to their body would be very unlikely to die. Finally, the empty tomb. The empty tomb and the appearances after his death, because truly Christianity hinges on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Paul said it. He wouldn't be a Christian anymore if he ever found out that the resurrection isn't true. The same goes for me. I wouldn't be a Christian anymore if I found out that the resurrection wasn't true. Christianity hinges on this point. So what evidences do we have that Jesus appeared after he died? We have the fact that a woman discovered the empty tomb. Women in the first century were not valuable. If this was a myth that was created, a legend that was created and was supposed to be believed, men would have been the central figures of the story, not women. Women would not have met him at, or met the empty tomb. Also, the guards never pointed them in another direction, never said, you have the wrong tomb. Everybody was confused about where the heck the body went. Nobody came up and said, here's the body, I have it. There was no reason for the disciples to steal the body, and there was really no reason for the guards to hide the body. There just was no body. And finally, the appearances. Dagmar, he appeared to more than 500 people. 500 people witnessed Jesus after he died. Who, who were these people? Peter. Peter was one of the people. Thomas, whom we've already talked about. Paul, whose life was completely transformed because of the appearance. He went from somebody who literally killed Christians and he completely changed his life and followed Christ. We've got women. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and other women. And then we've got the 500. One of your questions was about hallucinations. And I wanna to touch on that real quick. Did these 500 people hallucinate? Psychologically speaking, that's pretty much impossible. Um, hallucinations are rare to begin with, but if you're talking about somebody having a mass hallucination, it doesn't make sense. Hallucinations are single oriented. We are generally it's just one person hallucinating, which is why it's so weird, okay? Because uh, if you have 500 people who are claiming to see the same thing, it's probably not a hallucination. Further, in the earliest creed, which happened just a few months after Jesus's resurrection, it says those people were still living. Many of them were still alive at the time the creed was spoken. If you're one of those 500 people and you didn't actually see it happen, wouldn't you be like, I didn't see it happen. Don't let me in that group. Um, and so there were people who were still alive that were speaking about it. And finally, the disciples died for it. They literally died for this event. They believed it to their core so much that they saw the return Jesus that they went to their deaths for it. We don't go to our deaths for things that we don't believe in generally. Um, generally, it's something that we truly believe happened. And for them, Jesus Christ was resurrected and he ascended to heaven to lay the foundation for us in, in, her, in eternity. And they lived their lives out 
speaking that gospel until the very end of their days. Um, and so if you want historical evidences, we can give them and, and we can talk for ages on that. But those are just the basic evidences for the resurrection and why we can know that the resurrection actually happened. Now, what questions do you have? <laughs> I had some, but then you answered them. <laughs> for example, like um, often like people lie and if they think that uh, they can get special treatment because they saw Jesus walking around resurrected, they will probably do that. But now you said that there was a creed and stuff. I didn't know that. Then that seems less likely because people do not tend to die for their lives. So, yeah, that was kind of the only question I had from that story. Yeah, and I can recommend resources for you. There are some actual, there are some Catholic apologists to do this work um, that you might want to read. Peter Kreeft is one of them. Um, Francis Beckwith is another that I mentioned. Um, and you might find some of their things relatable because they are coming from a Catholic perspective. Um, and um, I'm happy to connect you with those resources after we're done with this podcast. Thank you. It would be fun. I don't know if I'm, I don't have a lot of time on my hands, but it would be fun to have. Me neither. I would, I would break them down for you. <laughs> um, I know we've been talking for a while and I want to respect both of your times. Obviously, what's the difference about Jehovah Witness versus Christianity? Mm -hmm. Because Dagmar has a loved person in her life who um, is involved in that. Um, so I'd love for you, especially Lindsay, because it's your, <laughs> it's your specialty to touch on that. Um, I could spend hours talking about. Both well, you're welcome questions. to. I'm here. I'm here for it. I don't know. I want to respect Dagmar because it's like bedtime there. So. Um. Oh no! It's it's half past seven, so it's not that okay. bad. So we have time. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's just. They're. If we talked about them forever, we could talk about them forever. There is a lot to unpack when we're talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I'll just be really basic um, in my discussion uh, and, and assume you don't know much. Uh, and, and, and you may know more than what I'm saying, but for the benefit of the listener, I'll just, I'll run down it really quickly. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses were found in the mid 1800s. Um, they were founded in the mid 1800s in the United States by a man named Charles Taze Russell. Um, he was very disenfranchised with the number of denominations that existed. Um, it was during a revival period um, in the Northeast, and he was just very disenfranchised. Why are there so many denominations? What is a denomination for somebody listening who's outside of the church? Right. I don't know that. <laughs> what was that? Dagmar doesn't know either. You do actually, Dagmar. <laughs> um, Protestants, Catholics, those are denominations. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, uh, I just don't know the English Different churches. Different different churches or sects that fall underneath the Christian umbrella, I guess is, is what you would say. Um, and so teenager Charles Taze Russell, he was 18, um, didn't really understand why there were so many um, uh, denominations. And so he, he asked God, I guess, for a sign and he ended up going to the Adventists um, and, and that's a denomination, um, and, and realize like, oh, I like what they're teaching here. There's not an eternal hell. And I, I don't like the concept of an eternal hell of torment. Um, and so that's good. Uh, and, um, they don't believe in the Trinity, which was something else that he was like, the Trinity is too confusing. We don't believe in the Trinity. The Trinity is the believing of the father, son, and Holy spirit. 
um, three and one, um, that's the Trinity. Um, and so he started uh, the watch, it was like a Bible club, basically. Uh, it eventually became the Jehovah's Witnesses. But you might hear them referred to as the Watchtower organization as well. Uh, that is kind of where he um, started publishing his ideas, his revelations, if you will, the things that he believed God was telling him about the world. Generally, he was speaking about the pending um, Armageddon. Uh, the Armageddon was supposed to happen in 1874. According to the Adventists, it was supposed to happen in 1874. 1874 came and went. And so we have gone through a couple of prophecies at this point now um, in present day where they predicted the Armageddon and those things didn't actually, we have not we still are here. <laughs> uh, what, what is Armageddon, Lindsay, for somebody listening? Right. So Armageddon is basically the end of the world. It's when okay. God pours his wrath out um, for the Jehovah's Witnesses. It is anybody who is not a Jehovah's Witness uh, dies in this fiery event um, and everybody else will be saved um, for Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, one thing I noticed in the intro video is you were talking about the number of people who can make it to heaven. Uh, it's 144,000. 144,000 can make it to heaven. And then the rest of, of the people, the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses will live in earthly paradise for, etern for eternity. That's that's how they only get earthly paradise. They do not get heaven. That is different than, than Christianity. Um, what did you ask, Dagmar? It's a kind of limbo, right? It's like an in-between world. That's no. what I... Is that what you've been told? Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's not traditionally what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Um, uh, they believe in annihilation. So if you are not a Jehovah's Witness, you are annihilated. Yeah, no, but yeah, no, I mean like for the, the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses who don't get into heaven. Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as, okay, so if you ask a Christian, what is our hope? Our hope is eternity with God. That's our hope mm -hmm. um, in heaven. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness what their hope is, generally, they will say earthly paradise. Now, what is earthly paradise? Earthly paradise for them is um, they will get new bodies that don't have any um, sickness or illness or anything like that. Um, and um, they will live in peace and harmony with the animals. Um, so I attended, we're again in Easter week. So um, one of the biggest Jehovah's Witnesses events is coming up. It's the memorial service for Christ's death. It happens on Good Friday every year. And it is their biggest event uh, of, of ever, of, of the year. There are roughly 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. On any given memorial service day, about 20 million people attend service. So that means that there are a good number of about 12 million people who are not Jehovah's Witnesses attending this memorial service for Jesus' death. In that service, they talk about their hope. And what is described to them is this earthly paradise. If your dad is, how long has your dad been a Jehovah's Witness? Um, he's not officially a Jehovah's Witness, but my stepmom was raised a Jehovah's Witness. My dad is doing like Bible study and stuff now. Okay. Um, has he attended a memorial service? Do you know? I think, 
Okay. So, so what is taught, um, I attended in 2019 and what is taught to the attendees is that their hope is in this earthly paradise. And the image that they painted was of this little girl eating raspberries, sitting next to a lion in harmony. Um, and so the image of an animal and a beast sitting in this loving embrace with a little girl eating fruit. Um, I, I don't know if we're all vegetarians in earthly paradise, but that was the image that they sort of painted um, for us. Um, and, and, and it really was, heaven was never on the radar. Um, and generally it's, it's not, unless you're a member of the 144,000. So who are these 144,000? Another phrase for them is the little flock. Um, they're, they're the people who um, are called out as, as special um, and, they're, and they're saved because um, uh, they're part of this. Basically, if you weren't born before 1970, you don't have any chance of being part of the 144,000. There are some people who um, they're leaders, they are part of the 144,000. So they're the, all the men who lead the Jehovah's Witnesses right now, they get a pass into heaven. Um, and so now the number is like, well, is it really 144,000? Is it a little bit more than 144,000? Um, but it's a very limited number. Now, what we're told in scripture outside of the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, what we're told in scripture is that narrow is the gate. Okay, so we know that the gate is already narrow, but where they get the 144,000 from, do you know where they get that from? Okay, so they get it from, from Revelation. Um, in Revelation, there's a description of 144,000 people. It's a book of the Bible. Oh, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And the problem with that is, if you ask them, are women going to be in heaven? The answer is yes. But the 144,000 described in Revelation are all men. So there's just one inconsistency in what they believe as far as who gets to heaven and who doesn't. Um, and, and, and the way that scripture has been um, sort of uh, adjusted to fit their terms. But um, that, that'll give you something to think about, Dagmar, and, and when you're thinking about who gets to heaven um, and, and, and realizing that the scripture that they base it on discusses 144,000 men, not women. So I want to ask a real quick follow-up question to that, because I think someone listening might be uh, sitting there going, does that mean the Christian Bible says that only 144,000 are going in? No, no, because that scripture isn't really about 144,000 people getting to heaven. Anyway, um, that is about, um, <laughs> Revelation is not my expertise. <laughs> Revelation <laughs> is very, very few scholars tackle that book because it is just so crazy to read. It's hard to put your brain in and understand what was happening in Revelation. But the description of the 144,000 is um, essentially they were people who stood up for Christ, the men who um, uh, stood up for Christ, I guess is, is the easiest way to describe who those 144,000. It wasn't describing who gets to heaven. That, that was never, never what that intended purpose was. It was, uh, yeah, um, but it's been distorted and um, used to bolster their argument that uh, only 144,000 will make it to heaven. Um, but anything else about the Jehovah's Witnesses that you might have questions about? Um, well, they do live by very strict rules. 
they are not like like what I know because possibly it's a little bit different because like the Jehovah Witness stuff that I know originates from Poland because my stepmother is Polish. So it might even be different than like the Dutch Jehovah Witnesses and the American Jehovah Witnesses. But for example, like they're not allowed to watch Harry Potter because it's Satanistic. Mm-hmm. Everything with magic in it is Satanistic. Mm-hmm. And everybody who does not believe in Jehovah is Satanistic. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's like just you're ruling out everybody who does not share the same beliefs as you. And so I believe some differentiations in Islam do that as well and in Christianity as well. But for me, that just, I can't wrap my mind around that. So I want to go back to what we said earlier about keeping the main things, the main things and how important yeah, that is. Sorry. <laughs> and no, no, not for you to keep the main things, but as Christians, what are the main things? So there are some Christians who also will not watch Harry Potter um, and uh, will not have anything magic related in their home. Um, and that doesn't mean that they're... Um, violating something in the Bible, and, and those who watch Harry Potter or read Harry Potter um, are, are not violating necessarily something in the Bible either. It's just a different opinion um, okay. about how they want to live their lives. And um, for Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever the Watchtower organization says is law. So they have to do whatever the Watchtower organization says. Um, and so have you ever seen any of the magazines that they that they've created, uh, like the, uh, it's called Awake. Her I don't head know yet. what it's called. I don't know what it's called there, but. Um, I've actually been to the like church sort of thing. The ward, I mean, the, the Kingdom Hall. Sorry, I switched to Latter-day yeah. there for a second. The Kingdom Hall. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the, other, the other thing you need to remember is that um, that's what they're learning. A lot of times it is the rules created by the organization, not the rules created by the Bible. Um, the Bible and the organization are distinct. And when we're looking at a worldview and whether it's true or reliable, we need to say, is it rooted in truth or is it man-made? I guess is the, is the ultimate question when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses is how reliable are their prophecies? They're a religion that hinges on prophetic word and none of the prophecies regarding the Armageddon ever came true. Um, and they've had to adjust yeah. those things over time. Uh, and, and that's, I, I mean, I really think that would be a nail in the coffin for me. Um, but for some others, it's, it's just, oh, something happened and God changed his mind. Or they always come up with some um, excuse as to why it didn't happen the way they thought it was going to happen. And then the other question about keeping the main thing, the main thing is who is Jesus to them? Um, and um for Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is not the son of God. He was the archangel angel Michael, the archangel, archangel Michael. Um, so if you're thinking about Michael in the Bible, he um, he's in the Bible. He's one of the, he's one, yeah, of the yeah, um, no. he's one of the angels that regularly appears in scripture along with Gabriel. Um, so it's either Gabriel or Michael. Um, and for Jehovah's Witnesses, Michael was in heaven and said, hey, send me. I'll be the savior. And, um, and so he came down and became who we know as Jesus. Um, and, and, and that is not 
biblical. So one of the responses to that is um, in, in the Bible, Michael is referred to as a prince. Mm -hmm. Jesus is referred to as the king of kings. He's not a prince. He's a king. He's the king of kings. So that means he's, he's the big kahuna. Um, why would this, this entity that is the same person be acceptable as a prince and then a king and vice versa? It, it doesn't quite make sense that those are the same people. Um, and, and so that's another, we're muddying the waters when it comes to the biblical narrative and how it plays out in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, yeah. And so you really need to look at what are these beliefs that they have and do they come from scripture? If we know that scripture is true and reliable, and you're going to be on a journey to determine that for yourself, if you come to the conclusion at the end of it, that the biblical narrative is historical and it's accurate and something that we can believe is true, then you take what other worldviews believe and hold it up against that and say, does it align? Does it make sense? And you can look at the ways that things have come about. Was it a revelation that happened when the person was alone and then all of a sudden they started a new religion? That is true of Islam. That is true of Latter-day Saints, uh, Mormons. You might call them Mormons. Um, and that is true of Jehovah's Witnesses. So when we're looking at that, Christianity was never discovered in a cave with some revelation by themselves. Jesus proclaimed himself to the masses. I mean, thousands and thousands of people at the same time sometimes. It was never in a little room by himself. Um, and so that to me speaks volumes. Um, who are the witnesses to this? And, and you can judge, okay, the witnesses of Christianity, who do we got? Now, who are the witnesses to Jehovah's Witnesses? Who is, who is telling me that this is true? And, and does it make sense? Um, and again, that's gonna be a conclusion, Dagmar, that you're gonna have to reach on your own. Um, I can't, I, I wish I could. I wish I could just snap my fingers and poof, you believe everything I just said and, and you know it to be true. Um, but, and that's just not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is gonna do work. Um, I'm just gonna give you information and lead you down the right path, hopefully. And, and you can find out for yourself what you believe. And it's a really important journey that you take. How old are, can you remind me how old you are? I'm 19. So when I was 19, I also went on a faith journey. I was in college and I was raised in the church. My dad's a pastor, my parents were missionaries, but I'd never really investigated the truth claims of other worldviews. And that was really when I started diving deep into world religion. It was the first time I read the Book of Mormon. It was the first time I read the Quran um, and, and a bunch of other um, faith books. And at the end of my journey, which was about six months to a year, at the end of that, I determined that Christianity was true and I wanted to live my whole life as a Christian. Um, but this is a really important journey that sometimes gets skipped. And, and that's okay. Some Christians are Christians their whole lives and they never have a, a crisis of faith. And that's a beautiful thing too. And people who have those testimonies, they're like, oh, it's amazing. Like, wow. <laughs> but then those who describe their journeys uh, and the past that they've taken, to determine if Christianity is something they actually believe, those are the compelling stories. Those are the ones I want to hear because those lift up my faith at the end of the day. And so when I'm hearing Lee Strobel talk about how he was an atheist and investigated whether or not Christianity was true, and at the end of the day became a Christian, he was trying to disprove it 
because he wanted to show his wife that she was a nutcase. Okay. That was essentially <laughs> what Lee was doing. He was like, I'm going to show my wife that she's crazy. And at the end of it, he joined her. Okay. Another name is Jay Warner Wallace. Um, he wrote one of the best apologetics books you could ever read. It's called, called Cold Case Christianity. I'm going to show it to you so you know what it looks like. Okay. One of the best books you could ever read on apologetics. This guy is a cold case detective. What does that mean? It means that he spent his time solving murders that are really old. So he solves the cases that are 30 years, 40 years, 50 years in the making. He goes back and finds the evidence and finds the person. Um, it's a popular show in the United States, might not be popular where you are, 2020. He's constantly on there um, uh, where they kind of like go through those old murder files and he solves those cases. He wanted to disprove Christianity too. And so he went against Christianity like a cold case detective. And he started compiling evidence after evidence to say, okay, I'm going to be an atheist. I'm just going to show everybody that they're wrong. And what happened? <laughs> At the end of it, he became a Christian. These are the kinds of stories that are important, Dagmar. And the journey you're on is great. <laughs> I can't tell you how, I don't even know you. I could, I'm, I could, I'm old enough to be your mother. <laughs> I'm proud of you. I am proud of you in a sense that you haven't just shoved your questions to the side and said, I'll deal with that later. That you have taken the time to ask these really hard questions and to say, I need these answers before I can live my full life for this. I need to know why it's true and prove it to me. And that, that is what we as Christians are called to do. In 1 Peter 3.15, we're called to be able to give a defense for the hope within us. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give you the hope and answer your questions with gentleness and respect. And I hope that I've done that today. But I, I really want to say that I'm just so proud of you um, and, and the journey that you're on. It's, I know we didn't answer the pain question. We can get to that too. But I think I'm, I'm very confident that as you continue to investigate the truth claims of Christianity, you will come out at the end with the conclusion that you know with confidence that the claims of the Bible are true and that you can walk confidently in your faith knowing that there is true hope and true joy and true peace found in Christ and that the hope of eternity with God is something that we can't even begin to imagine um, and, um, and that also that you will walk away knowing that there are Christians who are willing to have these conversations with you, whether it's on a podcast or in a phone call that's not recorded. Um, and I make myself available to you from here on out. You may call me, email me, whatever you want to do. Um, and I can loop my husband in too, because he knows a lot more <laughs> than I do sometimes. Uh, but truly um, honored to even have this talk with you. Thank you. I'm honored to. Thank you for answering my questions. Um, Dakmar, you have the final question there if you want to share it with Lindsay and then we'll wrap things up here. I do. Uh, the final question for Lindsay is the Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Of those gifts that some believe can uh, be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ, which stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? I've already touched on it a little, but I think it's the eternity aspect of it. Um, the hope within me is a big deal. Um, 
Otherwise, what the heck am I doing? What I could talk to you about the historical evidences and, and why we should believe Christianity is true. Um, but ultimately, um, it's eternity that is, is driving me to get to do what I do. And it's eternity that drives me to have conversations with people like you, Dagmar, with skeptics and those who are like, Christianity is bunk. <laughs> I want to have conversations with you to show you that this is just the smallest snippet of eternity. Um, we're wisps, okay? That's, we're going to fade away. Our lives are going to fade away, which is not a beautiful picture, but the hope of eternity is, I'll leave you with this image. I was probably your age when I was trying to think about the vastness of God. And I couldn't wrap my mind around eternity. It just, just didn't happen. Um, and it still doesn't, to be fair. Um, but I was brought to the image of a parade. So do you have parades where you are? I'm guessing you do, right? Okay, so in a parade, you're standing in the crowd and you're watching marching bands and um, floats go by and um, important people drive by in their cars and they're all waving at you. And generally you see one float at a time. You see the float in front of you, right? God sees the whole parade all at the same time. It's not one little float in front of him. He sees it all. So he sees from beginning to end. And that's not just little wisp. That's eternity. That's the whole parade. He sees from when the universe was created to when we will spend eternity with him in heaven after the second coming of Christ. And for me, that is, that is my hope. My hope is that I have been created in the image of this almighty personal God who loves me so much that he would send his son to die for me because he knew I couldn't be saved with my own works. There was no way for me to get to heaven. And Christ was resurrected and he ascended to heaven and he's patiently waiting for the time when we can all be with him forever. That's my hope. My hope is this eternal picture of when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, that was the parade. I got lost with the loud marching band and forgot, like, that's a whole book. You know, that's, that's, that's an encyclopedia. Look, I aged myself. That's a whole encyclopedia. That's not just one little book in the encyclopedia. It's the whole encyclopedia. God's got the whole thing read cover to cover. And we're just focusing on like one entry at a time. Um, and so if I think about it in that way, it makes what I'm doing um, have a lot more purpose behind it. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And of course, it's not just like your encyclopedia. It's every human's encyclopedia. Everybody's encyclopedia. And, and he's timeless. So this conversation is happening to him with him in weird time. <laughs> you know, mere Christianity, um, Lewis talks about that and the fact that, you know, God is not restrained by time and space. And, and that for us is really hard to understand. Um, but when you think of it as, okay, he can see the whole parade and I've got to wait 30 minutes to get to the end of it or an hour to get to the end of it. Um, it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Well, Dakmar and Lindsay Medenwalt, thank you both so much for being here. I this has been a fun conversation. Dakmar, there's a lot of, a lot to chew on here. What do you think? 
Yeah, it's definitely a lot. <laughs> but it's 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 been interesting again. I've I've learned stuff and uh, yeah. Yeah. Are you going to re-listen to these as they air so that way when we record our final episode you're going to be like, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Cuz there's so much sometimes I think especially having hosted this podcast now for a year and a half, like I get so much in the conversation during, but I almost get more sometimes in the listening later and having time to reflect on on what people say. So um, I'm just thankful for you both. Lindsay, I'm thankful for your ministry. Thank you for coming on here and sharing from your expertise and from your heart. Um, Thanks for inviting me. Thankful. Very thankful. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories, and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.